0: Good afternoon and welcome to the Freedom to Buy podcast presented by SuperNet. I'm Joe Dworski, the president of Retail Banking for SuperNet, which is the only payment network that enables true credit card solutions for the cannabis industry, both for merchants and consumers alike. Each week, our podcast will take you behind the scenes of banking, finance, payments and technology to help educate both businesses and listeners like you on how to make the most of your purchasing power in the world of credit. My next guest is a behavioral economist interested in high-impact catalysts that advance humanity. He's a pioneer in distributed ledger technology and has invented novel methods for virtual learning and maintaining academic records on public blockchains. His work has been featured in The Guardian, Bloomberg, Huffington Post, and Reuters, among many others. Please welcome to today's show, James Song. James, welcome and thank you for joining today. Thanks for having me. I'd like to start today's conversation by taking a step back and learning about your earlier days in your career and how that led to today's blockchain, you know endeavor and, you know, what you're doing with that today.
1: I did my undergrad at Harvard University and after graduating, I wanted to continue studying psychology, which is, which is what I focused on as an undergrad. I did a Fulbright in Uganda and during my Fulbright in Africa, but generally on the African continent, it's very slow. It's very difficult. There's a lot of bureaucracy. I was doing research in psychology. And I thought the most impact I could have would probably end up in a journal somewhere. Like I do some research, get published in a journal, and then that journal would sit in a basement of a library or in like a digital archive and never be read. So I thought, what could move the needle in Uganda for these people? I was doing HIV research study at the time using hypnosis because Uganda, where I was, is a landlocked country. So typically, you would use highly active antiretroviral medicines, drugs, uh, and you'd give them uh, like a cocktail of these drugs, uh, people with HIV to prolong their life and their health. Uh, But the problem is when you have a landlocked country, everything gets taxed multiple times. So you would have to come in, say, through Dar es Salaam or Kenya. And then from that port, it would get shipped in to Uganda and then you know it would get taxed once in kenya or mombasa and then uh it would get taxed again when once it entered uganda unless you had some kind of our uh, tax holiday for the drugs you're using for your study so i thought oh well i studied the problem since i was on the ground and i could see that uh when you have hiv when you have a like a rapid depression of your immune system you progress or you accelerate the progression from hiv to aids and what was causing that in uganda was getting malaria and what was causing malaria was of course getting mosquito bites but where mosquitoes were breeding were these still pools of water and these still pools of water were caused by gutters on the side of the road and these gutters on the side of the road would get blocked because of plastic bags that people would throw throw away they would litter and it would clog the sewage system, cause these big uh, pools of water. Mosquitoes would breed. You'd get malaria. So I ended up building a plastic recycling factory. Uh, that didn't happen overnight. That took like several months of research. But of course, I had a lot of time because uh, things weren't progressing. Like there would be board approvals for my research. So I ended up building a plastic recycling plant. It wasn't a. I thought it was, I wasn't a big plant from like a Western standards, but it happened to be the largest recycling plant at the time in all of sub-Saharan Africa. And it ended up becoming the kind of wellspring or, or like the source of, of the plastic recycling industry for, for all of sub-Saharan Africa going forward, just because the model I used was the same as what I had seen in New York City where people would pick up aluminum cans off the street and return them for a nickel. The same, we would uh, incentivize people to go out and collect plastic for us. And then we would pay them for the plastic that they would bring to us. So, you know, it became a way of warning hundreds of people at the time. And then it became a big thing all over East Africa. And then after a couple of years of doing that, I decided I wanted to exit just because, you know, after a while, you're, growing the business and you want to expand and Uganda as, as a market at the time was only about two tons of plastic a day. That's the most, they would discard, the population would discard. So that's the most you could recycle there. And you know, I wanted to expand, I wanted to do 10, maybe 20 tons a day at minimum. And Uganda, the government at the time, had a problem with me importing plastic waste from other countries to recycle. So I knew I couldn't grow the business, so I decided to sell it. And after I had sold it, this was about 2010, and I had been in Uganda for a few years at that point, and I had completed the pilot study that I had done on my Fulbright, and I had to decide whether I wanted to stay to continue doing my research or if I wanted to take all the money from selling my factory and do something with it. So I decided I would take the money and leave just because I couldn't grow the plant. And you know, like I didn't want to run with the same problem I had before where the research I'm doing gets stuck in some kind of digital archive somewhere and goes nowhere. So I thought I would come back, start a hedge fund by that time, by 2010, I had gotten a master's degree and I would travel back and forth between Kampala and London, and I'd gotten a master's degree in neuroscience about that. I thought I would start a biotech hedge fund so I had moved back to New York. This is again, after I finished my master's, I moved back to New York just because I thought it was the most meritocratic thing I could do. Meaning I do my research and then uh, no one decides the worth of that research. You know, I would invest my money and it either makes money or it doesn't make money. So very straightforward. And there were no politics, no other people involved. It was just the value of the research I was doing. And I really enjoyed that. I started a hedge fund. I did investments for about a body here. I returned something like 78 or 80%, something in that range. So I did very well. Dan Presser. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I, yeah, I did all right. And I thought I would do that going forward, but then I got a call about Burma and I got a call because I had met lots of people in Singapore. During those years I was in Uganda because I was traveling back and forth between Asia and Uganda to buy machinery for my recycling factory. And they had said, Look, Burma's opening up. You know, you're used to kind of working in these third world environments. You know, Burma's kind of like that. You know, it, it needs to develop. And, you know, there the people in Burma are looking for people to invest in things there. Are you interested? And I said, No you know, I had no interest in living, you know, like a resource deprived kind of context anymore. You know, just getting back in New York City. And, but, you know, after a year of doing that with my hedge fund, my hedge fund was a biotech-focused, event-driven si- special situations fund. So the way most of that works is you identify some kind of mispricing problem, and then you would mm-hmm. put in your money and then you'd wait. So there would be months where I'd just wait and i drink in the afternoon and then go, go shopping, but not buy anything because it was just letting time pass for these investments to come to fruition. Fund was large enough, you get the management phase so you can take the time. I was running my own book. I didn't think I would manage anyone else's money, right? Because I, 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 I didn't have to answer to anyone. You know, I have always really liked that, not having to answer to anyone. Uh, I, think, I think when you have your own ideas, a lot of them are very unpopular. You know, when you base it on what you believe to be fact or truth, a lot of it is very Mm -hmm. unpopular. So you you end up making, you end up coming at odds with a lot of people. Did you ever go back to running the hedge fund for yourself? In Myanmar, they eventually roped me in and I started a private equity fund there where we did raise from outside investors. And we were beholden to the United States government because we were backed by an agency called bullpick at the time, they would give you political risk insurance, meaning the U.S. government would guarantee your investments. So like if you, a U.S. citizen, invested in Burma at the time and the Burmese government took over the investment or something happened to it, the U.S. government would make you go. I, I
0: don't know what this. you're talking about. If somebody invested in this fund, this private equity fund yeah. that you were running over in Burma, yeah, okay, that if I invested in that- yeah. I'm basically assured by the U.S. government if yes. this fund fails. If it fails for certain reasons, like if the Burmese
1: government takes over like, whatever factory, whatever thing you invested in, the U.S.
0: government would pay you back for it. Plus whatever expected profit was. It was something like 175%. Governmental intervention. It's not if you make an investment in a private company in Burma and it doesn't work out. Somewhere in the middle, because
1: typically what, it's political risk insurance. So political risk mm-hmm. is typically like you invest in a private company, that private company starts to do well. Then the government says, you know, I'd like to be in that business because it's doing well, so let me take control of this. You know, let me take this from you. Like if you have a coffee shop, that coffee shop is doing mm-hmm. really well with tourists. Then the government says, oh, you know what? Maybe this should be a government
0: business now because it's doing so well. I yeah. never knew that type of insurance existed. How did yeah. the private equity fund? how that work at the private equity fund? It went terribly.
1: I was beholden to a lot of people, so I couldn't make a lot of the decisions I wanted. We succumbed to a lot of scammers who wanted a piece of what we were doing. So the way they went about it was they started spreading rumors. Like we were scamming people, you know, over time, like it's been years now. Over time, you know, like people realized nothing came of it. So it's, it's nothing. But when people are blasting all over the internet that you're scamming people, you know, it's hard to get control of that, especially when you want to be largely private about what you're doing, especially in a country like Myanmar, right? Where people are like, you know, this has a history of human rights abuses. At the time, there was a big problem with the government and how they were treating Rohingya refugees. So they were looking for any kind of bad news they could promote kind of control the narrative in media. So that was very difficult. So, and, you know, and that was exactly the kind of thing I didn't want to do, like play these political games in people's minds. What does it mean to be a behavioral economist? A lot of economics is about decision-making, and decision-making is largely behavioral. It's, you know, it's psychological. A lot of times economists, traditional economists, try to distill everything down to mathematics. And that's very difficult for humans. So for instance, what what color is the ocean? You could say blue, but is your blue the same as my blue? And how do we quantify that? A lot of things that humans do is difficult to quantify. So we can kind of think about economics in terms of psychological effects. I work a lot with blockchains, and what people tend to miss about blockchains is that it's not just technology; they're also economic systems, but they're also communities. And you can't have any one of these things without the Like, you can't just be technology without the community. There's no community. This support that technology, the blockchain goes away. Similarly, if the economics are poor, you know that whatever blockchain uh, ecosystem is there will blow up like uh, with uh, the Terra Luna kind of debacle or a couple of years ago, I think now, that was a mathematical error, like a technical error, like it was never going to work, right? And just because they didn't understand the economics of it, you, you can't have an algorithmic stable point. It just, it doesn't work
0: mathematically. You're considered a pioneer in distributed ledger technology and have invented novel methods for virtual learning and maintaining academic records on public blockchains. Can you enlighten our listeners on some of these inventions and how they are helping society today? I was in Myanmar, I was working with
1: Rohingya refugees in 2017. And I had thought you could use blockchains to record academic records because it's publicly auditable, counterfeit resistant. So it's hard to shape and it's immutable. So, you know, like once you put in your grades it's it's hard to change in the future like it's impossible to change so it would be perfect for academic records so i thought if you were to deliver video like remote learning into a refugee camp since you can't build schools there could you deliver tests virtually record those test results on a blockchain and then attach it to a specific person so that that was the the bulk of my work and that had kind of evolved to building schools in new york city with the idea that uh, i would try to deliver education virtually i started having problems with delivering virtual education like getting attention getting compliance meaning getting kids to finish their homework those are difficult problems and i saw that in 2019 ish so like when COVID came around people were doing virtual learning i knew it wouldn't last but it was very unpopular to say anything and then I don't know if you remember during COVID, but um, in 2020, New York City went bankrupt, de Blasio, the mayor at the time, pulled funding for my schools. It's something I never thought would happen. And then that kind of led to the work I'm doing now, which is you know, working on economic systems.
0: Let me ask you about the the component virtual learning. You saying it didn't work out, up, at least in New York, but they have virtual learning down. I'm down in Florida. I know a lot of people that do homeschooling, you know, further... Kids, and it's all online. It's through something with the state of Florida, and I'm sure many other states have it. And they log in and they get the assignments and they do the assignments. So, how would that differ from what you were doing in the city? And I would imagine this uh, blockchain technology obviously could be used in any virtual learning environment globally, you know, let alone the United States. I don't think
1: it works. At the high end, you need a lot of self-motivation, and that is not the same for every student. And the problem is to get high-quality education, the same for every student, there needs to be pressure, pressure that students respond to. And it usually comes from pressure from the teacher, where you get in trouble for not doing your homework or not performing well, and social pressure from your peers, meaning like other kids around you make fun of you because you're the worst performing team or you're not performing well. And without those social pressures, you get a, I believe, over time, you, you're not going to see it in one year, but over five years, six years, over a, an academic career, you'll see like a drop in performance just because you lose the social component of school. Now, mm-hmm. you can totally AI school, meaning what I had built in my app using the forward-facing camera of your smartphone to track your eyes. And that would kind of figure out where you're paying attention. And it would play a video. And if you would look off to the side for more than two seconds, the video would stop. So it's not like you could play the video and then walk away, right? It would stop. So you, you would never complete the course unless you were physically watching a video. When you're trying to teach a subject, that
0: child has no interest in, but must learn. Are you working on any other applications uh, outside of the education arena for this, you know, distributed, you know, blockchain uh, ledger technology? If you
1: think about money, money is our idea about money is inflationary, right? So everyone has to deal with inflation and some, many of us has to deal with very high inflation, but there should be some counter inflationary force. The way our money is created now, we need a counter cyclical force to counterbalance that inflationary pressure, which is what our money represents. You know, like you, you earn money. So it represents, say, an hour of work and you take that hour of work to the grocery store. So your hour of work represents a, a dinner worth of groceries, right? But next year, what you're saying is my hour of work cannot buy dinner anymore. So over time, I can work five hours and still not buy a meal for myself. So, and, and that's the problem with inflation. It's not, it's not real. It's not a fair representation
0: of what happens on Earth, right? So, uh, you need you, something to balance that up. Talking about inflation and given that you're an economist, a behavioral economist, I'd love to uh, share with our listeners your thoughts on today's you know economic environment, interest rates, inflation and a potential recession that many are predicting may or may not come. What are your thoughts on that? An underappreciated area of research is what the US Fed
1: does. Does. Now, Now, the Fed has many branches. There was a paper written in 2000 after the Richmond Fed by Goodfriend, which was like a playbook for what happens in a monetary crisis where you need to overcome the lower zero bound, interest rates. meaning if you need to go negative on interest rates, that kind of came to play in 2008, uh, when. The fed wanted to go negative, but couldn't, but probably in real terms, like real interest rates, like what we were doing, were probably negative. So what they did was lower it down to near zero and they did one a day easy. What people don't understand is all of this was written about. It was all done, researched long before that. So part of that research uh, is that what happens now, you know, like the Fed still wants the power to go negative, to do negative interest rates, even though we're in a high interest rate environment, the Fed wants flexibility to do their job. So, and that's part of the reason why they're targeting 2% now. It's because back in 1997, there was research done. Larry Summers, I think, did that research on the Fed needing a cushion to lower rates to zero, and that cushion should be around 3%. That's why they're targeting 2%, so it's not so extreme. So if there is a big problem in the future, and they are anticipating the possibility of there being a big problem in the future, they want that 2% cushion, so they can lower it back down to zero. It's a strange thing I'm seeing is that the Fed now has an account on Instagram and they now have an account on Threads. I think that this was just the last week. Part of the research that was done in 2000 was that for negative rates to work, uh, you would implement a carry tax, meaning you, were, you would bring the rates down to zero and then you implement a carry tax, meaning you tax money stored at the central bank. So you would tax bank money stored at the central bank. And, and then you would let these banks
0: take care of it between the bank interfacing with like retail depositors. If people are interested in learning more about what you're doing, okay, where can they find information on what you're doing, James? And if they need to reach out and contact you, how can they, uh, you know, contact you?
1: I think the best would be my GitHub. I don't sell anything. So, and most of what I do is free. Building Burma. That that's oh building Dash Burma. That's my GitHub. I think you could use Building Burma without the dash and find me on most social platforms and happy to reach out and talk about it.
0: Well, this has really been great. I mean, I learned a lot. It's very enlightening. I think, you know, with what's going on with the you know, the blockchain is here to stay. So looking forward to when you have, you know, this new program that you're working on, invention, whatever you may call it. When it's ready to come to market, we'd love to talk to you again, You know, share with our listeners. Thanks everybody for listening to today's show, Freedom to Buy, which is presented by SuperNet each week. You can learn more about our payment network by going to our website at supernet.ai. And you can also listen to past episodes of Freedom to Buy on cannabisradio.com. You can also get it on the Apple Podcasts, Amazon Music, Spotify and Google Podcasts. Um, please join us next week uh, as we welcome our next guest uh, to learn more about opportunities uh, from Freedom to Buy and SuperNet. Thank you so much and have a great day.